People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note right here on Fine Music Radio. Now my guest today, John Scott a former editor of the Cape Times, a University of Cape Town graduate and a journalist since the age of 18. His long career included assignments in Britain, Europe, the United States, Israel. In 1989, for example, he covered the historic fall of the Berlin Wall, and he's probably best known these days as a satirical columnist, and he's still writing his P.S. column, 48 years, nearly 50 years since its inception. And there's lots to talk about. John, welcome. John Scott, welcome to the People of Note studio. Thank you, Ronnie. An overdue guest, I would say. This PS column of yours now appears in the burger, doesn't it? But in English. Just how did that come about? Because I was intrigued that they allowed you to write in English. Well, when there was a, a bunch of columnists in the Cape Times, end of 2014, and we were all fired simultaneously, they called them a stable of, of columnists. <laughs> stable included, of included people like uh, Alistair Sparks, who was a former editor of the mm-hmm. Randalli Mail and various others. And we were all taken over very kindly by um, Willem Jordan, who was in the deputy editor of Die Burger, who is now the editor. And uh, they were all translated into Afrikaans. And Willem said, uh, John... Uh, you're not translatable we're going to make an exception in your case and continue with your column but in English uh, under the same title P.S. Mm-hmm. and he says please just carry on writing it the same way <laughs> which I have done, been doing now for nearly seven years Gosh, but the column itself you said is about to turn 50 Next year will be the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. I think it must set some kind of a record. I began writing P.S. for the Cape Times in 1971. Gosh. And the whole idea it was the brainchild of the then editor, a very good friend, old colleague of mine, Tony Hurd, who said we needed something uh, lighter on the leader page. Mm-hmm. And uh, the P.S. is the postscript to the leader, and yes. that's how it got its name. Yes. yes, But you also famously wrote for many years Notes from the House, uh, I did. where you reported I did. on Parliament. Well, I started writing Notes from the House first uh, with an ironic satirical slant. Yes. And then, of course, Parliament only sat for six months of the year. And the second half of the year, they felt that uh, maybe uh, John Scott should continue in some form of poking fun at ah. people and institutions, and that's how that's how PS came into that's how it began. But first of all, the first year or two, I, I I was writing notes in the house. By the way, a satirical column that was begun by the very first editor of the Cape Times, Frederick uh, Yorks and Ledger, and uh, went and he was very satirical himself, and that's how how it got its flavour. Mm-hmm. And my almost my immediate predecessor was a wonderful columnist, uh, Notes in the House columnist, Anthony Delius. 
and he uh, he he wrote under the by uh, name of Adderley. Adderley, as Adderley, in Adderley Street. Adderley, Adderley, and I used to, as a young man, I'd just left school, I think, I used to read Adderley uh, in the Cape Times mm. and just think it was the most marvelous thing. And then I I worked up in Namibia, Southwest Africa, for two years for assistant editor of the Vintic Advertiser. And I started something, a, a column there on the, they had a legislative assembly, and I modeled it on what I thought was Adderley at Emidelius. And I, I named it Assembly Sidelights. Oh. And then, of course, when I came back to Cape Town and I joined the Cape Times, within a couple of years, I was in the press gallery and I took over the notes in the house column. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the story about it, the parliamentary column. What, one of the things I wanted to ask you, just going back to the Burger and your column there in English, it appears on a Saturday, doesn't it? Every so, Saturday. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what was the reader reaction? Do you well, know? I mean, anecdotally, I had very, very uh, good response. I put my email address at the end. So, yes, I see that. Uh, a lot of people uh, uh, write in and just say how much they enjoy it. Uh, and then uh, by word of mouth as well, I... Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember that I got anything negative. And I would have thought that in the beginning, because the uh, Afrikaans language is under a lot of pressure. Yes, that's what I was thinking. They uh, sort of feel it's being exactly. The universities are forced to teach in English, and it would be one thing for Stenenbosch, for instance, to at least have equality, but it's not. Uh, English comes first, and Mm. Stenenbosch is the bastion uh, of the Afrikaans language. It's very sad. And um, so I thought that there might be a bit of resistance because seeing in English, <laughs> something in English in Die Burger, but it, it hasn't happened like that at all. Mm-hmm. There was a precedent because at one stage, um, uh, in the early days of Tony Hurd's editorship of the Cape Times, the Cape Times and the Burger swapped leaders. And we used to publish the Burger Leader. Uh, we translated it into English because I think we assumed quite rightly that the great majority of our readers would not be able to understand Afrikaans, especially the more highfalutin Afrikaans <laughs> used in the Burger. In that sort of context, But uh, yes. the Burger uh, editor, it was Pizzelier, uh, decided that um, his readers were quite capable of reading English and understanding it, so they published our leader in uh, in, English. In, in English in English. So there, there's a the press. That's the precedent of the Burger <laughs> publishing something in English before my column started to appear. Good old Burger, I say. <laughs> yes. John, I think it's time for your first piece of music. What I see you've chosen the tells, the Barcarolle, the famous Barcarolle from the Tells of Hoffman. Yes. Is there a reason that apart well, from its Well, it's a sentimental reason because I went to Weinberg Boys High and my junior school headmaster and standard top five teacher was a wonderful guy called, well, officially Arnold Laurie, but you're known universally as Annie Laurie. And he ran the school orchestra. He was a very uh, interesting guy, very upright, and with hindsight, quite camp. Yes. Quite camp. <laughs> and, uh, but he ran the school orchestra, and he was a violinist himself. He, he taught the violin at the back. If you had to stay in after school, you had to 
have the, him teaching uh, the violin behind, which wasn't a pleasant ex- uh, exercise. It made staying in after even worse than it would otherwise have been. But he ran the school orchestra. It was purely a, a stringed orchestra. It was uh, violins and cellos. And almost every concert that they performed, and I was, uh, I, uh, was there because I did, used to do some play acting on the stage. Mm-hmm. But we had to listen to it. And every single time, almost, he played Hoffman's Barcarolle. You know, the <laughs> Tales of Hoffman, yes. Barcarolle. By Offenbach. From Offenbach, yes. And so um, I just thought... A sentimental <laughs> it's, it's reason. A sentimental reason. And it's Why a not? lovely piece. People yes. love it. So here yes. we go. Okay.
the Barcarolle from the opera The Tales of Hoffman by Offenbach, the first choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, and that is John Scott, editor, writer. Um, John, how many books have you written altogether? Because some of your columns, many of your columns, have been, have been published in, in book form, yes, yes. yes. Seven altogether. Seven? Seven altogether. Most of them have been collections of columns, mm-hmm. but not all. Um, I did a book in 1984. I was part of a press contingent who went with P.W. Boerta through Europe. We did 17 co- uh, eight countries in 17 days. And I was commissioned by a publisher to write a book before we went, so I was taking detailed notes and so on. And I produced a book uh, which the publisher titled Venture to the Exterior, mm-hmm. as opposed to Lawrence van der Post's Interior. So that was an interesting exercise. I don't know whether I went wrong or right, but Peck Berto, who was the foreign minister at the time, was so pleased with this book that he bought up a thousand copies, which had really, really helped sales, and for distribution to all the embassies and consulates, South African embassies and consulates, so they could sort of get the message. It was like Mao's uh, red book, you know, compulsory reading. Um, exactly. John Scott on P.W. Boater <laughs> traveling around Europe. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I just want to find out a bit of background. I, you hmm. said earlier how you used to read Adderley's columns when yes. you were a schoolboy. Had yeah. you always been interested in writing and journalism? Oh, yeah. was, very much did so. you knew it was going to be your life? Yes. For a brief period, uh, I thought I'd, I'd better go into medicine, be a doctor. Oh. And... Uh, Although I worked my way through university anyway, the whole prospect of saving up for six or seven years. And then I had a very uh, an old friend of my father's who had been a Harley Street doctor, uh-huh. Dr. Bill Rawson, uncle of the property developer. And he and my dad were great pals. They ran a, well, they called it the Scott Rawson Syncopated Orchestra. It was a group uh, uh, in the old days. And um, he he had given up doctoring, and he'd gone into journalism, became a freelance journalist. He renamed himself from Bill Rawson to William Wanamaker. And he persuaded me one fairly drunken evening at my parents' house in Plumstead. He got through a lot of scotch in his day and night. And um, he said, no, you don't want to be a doctor. You want to do what you do best. I can know you're right. And then, and so I changed my mind. And then uh, at the end of that year, I joined the SABC as a, I wrote regional news bulletins. Uh, and I worked uh, with Athel Fugard and a few other people. But wait, wait, wait. And, I, and I wrote, and then I, for that was, I did that for two years. At the SABC? And then I had saved up enough to start to go to university. <laughs> yeah. There's a story somewhere about you having a competition with Athel Fugo about uh, typing on an old... <laughs> typing competition. <laughs> Quite right. Quite right. <laughs> Is that true? Absolutely true. You must have been Absolutely bored. true. I was <laughs> warned, you see. I'd, I'd been to secretarial college. I'd learned uh, touch typing and mm-hmm. stuff. And he was a two-finger man. But he prided himself on the speed at which... So the, within a few days of coming in, I was very nervous. I was a young junior. He challenged me to a typing contest, <laughs> and the rest of the group gathered round, and they warned me. They said, for God's sake, 
Don't type faster than Ethel. You'll never forgive. You'll make your life a misery. Well, I was so nervous I didn't have to try and type slowly. <laughs> and he banged away at a great rate. And obviously he finished typing before I did. And we got on like a house on fire thereafter because uh, he was still the, the, the uncrowned king of typing in the SABC. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I'd forgotten that Ashwell Fugard actually worked for the SABC as well. Oh, yeah. And that you said you were 18. You were very young and raw in those days. Yeah, I worked. For, I was 17. I worked for the Board of Executives for one year. Mm-hmm. And then 18 and 19, I, worked, I wrote regional news bulletins. Yes. Translated mainly. Uh, from Streaknes into English, into okay. regional news. And I got to know important places because this is where the most important correspondents lived and worked and sent in messages from people, pl- places like Bart Skierdesbos. Oh, yes, and, Bart Skierdesbos. Uh, and Wilkenheitsdruf. <laughs> and, uh, and the refuse on the end. And, and, and I had to coach, bring the bulletin down, paper, and then coach the newsreaders, because there were quite some English ones. There was mm. a guy called Dorian DeWitt, and you uh, had to coach him in, uh, into how to pronounce the Afrikaans. <laughs> anyway, I mean, that's a long time ago. A long time ago. Long time ago. And then did you go from the SABC? Is that where you launched into the uh, newspaper and world? Then I, and then I, I joined the Argus, and I worked for the Argus a bit, and I went to the Argus Cadet School. That's where I learned shorthand. Uh, as well. It was very useful. Pittman shorthand, 120 mm. words a minute. Good heaven. And then I went up to the guy who I had been working with in the SABC, Bill Franklin. He'd become an editor of the Vintag Advertiser because the the previous editor had, had was chased out of town by a posse of cuckolded husbands. And he <laughs> didn't stop driving his Land Rover until he crossed the Kunene River into Angola. And so anyway, so Bill invited me to come and join him as his assistant uh, of the Vindigapetizer. Gosh, a nice yeah. thing to happen to a young man. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that was a, those two years were wonderful, I must say. Yeah. We're going to have another piece of music now. Yeah. You've chosen actually one of my favorites here, the Fingal's Cave Overture, oh, yes. or the Hebrides by Mendelssohn. Is there a little story of here? Of course there is. Oh, oh good. yes. My, my father was a cinema manager all his life, but his great passion was making movies. Uh, a lot of home movies, he did travelogues, and he did a movie called Jane in January, a story movie involving himself and my mother. They were both around about the age of 40, and they meet on the beach at Scarborough Way. And in those days, hardly any houses, it was very kind of remote mm. and uh, rather like the Hebridean yes, Islands. Yes. And so there was a long, long panning shot right around the coast, and accompanying it was Fingal's Cave. Ah. And, and we, of course, we saw the movie so often that uh, it became almost a household song. Yes, you know, a theme you, song. A theme song, yes. So that, so I thought, why not Fingal's Cave? Okay. Well, yeah. we're not going to take it all because it's about 11 no, no, minutes long. No, no, I know that. I know that. But, but we'll but certainly have that bit where he depicts the sea right exactly, at the beginning. Exactly, Which and lasts swell. about a minute, couple oh, of no, minutes. We'll take, we'll take more take that because it's more. such a beautiful piece. Right, yes. here we go. Okay.
part of the Fingal's Cave Overture by Mendelssohn, the overture which has two names, the Hebrides or Fingal's Cave, depicting the sea there, a choice of my guest, John Scott. And John, you mentioned, and I was going to ask you about this, you mentioned about your father being a cinema manager, yes. and apparently you were something of an expert on the old cinemas in Cape Town. Well, I, 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 you know, I went to these movie houses mm. from a very young age, and my father was a relieving manager for much of the time, and then he was manager of the what he called the big townhouses, the Coliseum, the Alhambra, the Van Riebeck, and the Plaza. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I was brought up on movies, and um, <laughs> later I might mention one particular one. But um, uh, so there were, it was. Uh, <laughs> my father went off to work every evening. In a dinner jacket and black tie, because yes. that's, that's what you did in those days. Mm. You stood in the entrance shaking hands with, with patrons. Ah, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And my, and, and my brother and I, my younger brother and I, would sit at home with my mother and listen to Springbuck Radio, uh, Lux Radio Theatre, and uh, consider your verdict and things like that. In our plumstead house with a fire going on winter nights. Yes, while your father was at work. But weren't those those lovely days? I I think I came in at the end of it where you went to the cinema and there were proper ushers and there was was a sort of commissionaire in a uniform at the door. And at the Alhambra, the chief lady usherette was Gordon Mulholland's mother. Good grief. And my mother, my father used to refer to her as old mother Mulholland. Uh, but that was what Gordon's mother did. Good grief. And of course, he became a very, very good and famous actor. He did indeed. Yes. He had quite a career. And most of those cinemas have been knocked down, haven't they, so they sadly? Oh, yes, yes. Those magnificent architectural oh, gems. Especially really. the, the old Alhambra. Yes, I believe you know, the so. The Moorish interior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Now, you were going to tell me something about a particular film... Well, I was going to wait for the final choice of okay. choice of music. Well, then let's keep it as a secret. Yes, let's keep yes, it as yes, a secret yes. until then. John, I want to talk to you in particular about your book, A Pilgrim in India, hmm. just for a while. Yes. Because apparently this was very, very important to you. The whole yes. Indian thing, Indian religions, the Indian yes. gods and idols and all that is very important well, to you. Well, uh, India itself has been a lifelong interest of mine. Mm-hmm. From Do you my, know why? John? From my late teens. Well, because I was became interested in yoga, and in Indian religion and philosophy, mm. and it's influenced my own religious and spiritual beliefs to a large extent. And I had this lifelong ambition to get to India, which was very difficult in the older days because they didn't want white South Africans. What was that famous sign? No dogs and no South Africans. Yeah, I Is never that saw that, but I was oh. told that there was there were signs, no do- no dogs or South Africans. And eventually, I was able to. It's a long story. It's it's all part of the book. But there was a travel agent in Cape Town, a wonderful man called Inos Banderka, and he said, "I can get you there because I've got contacts, and I know who to bribe." I mean, I'm cutting it. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm sort of not using any euphemisms here. And I you go with bottles of scotch and aftershave lotion, and I'll point you in the right direction. Well, the thing is, I went with all this. The bribes didn't work. When we did eventually get there, we went on a seven-day transit visa, uh, and but we had booked for six weeks 
stay there and return. Mm. And eventually, um, through, it was a miracle, really, come to think about. Uh, after enormous struggle, because Indian bureaucracy is worse than any other kind of bureaucracy. <laughs> yes. I got in to meet the right kind of guy. He was an undersecretary or junior minister. His name was Vinay Washista. And I explained to him my lifelong interest. I mentioned all these names. I said I wanted to go up to Dakshineshwar, where Ramakrishna spent most of his life. I wanted to climb the holy mountain of Arunachal down in South India, above the town of Tiruvannamalai. I wanted to go to Kenshi up in the Himalayas, where Neem Karoli Baba was one of my heroes. Ramana Mahashi was down, the, the great sage in South India. And I'd read about these people, and I mentioned all this. And at the end, very interesting, he said, Mr. Scott, you have convinced me that you are a genuine pilgrim. And that was, and there was a lot of other stuff still to be done. And, yes. But that was the key. And eventually we got permission to stay for a full six weeks. When I was reading the book, which is called A Pilgrim in India uh, by John, I was struck by the bureaucracy you mentioned, but I was also struck by all these names, which you just let roll off your tongue at the moment. And when yeah. I was reading the book, some of them are so long, you've got to go back and sort of try <laughs> and pronounce them in your head. But obviously, as you impressed this man, it's something that was sort of ingrained in you, could we say? It was. This it fascination was. of sages, Indian sages. Oh, yes. And temples. Very much so, yeah. It was the, uh, the mystical side mm. of the not so much the temples, but the great mystics uh, who influenced me. Ramana Maharshi was one, Ramakrishna, the great 19th century sage, and then uh, Nimkaroli Baba, who was this, the guru of another wonderful man, uh, an American, mm. uh, whose, whose born name was Richard Alpert, but he became Ram Das, and he wrote, he went and stayed up in the Himalayas, and he's written a lot of books. He's only died a few years ago. Okay. Uh, I think he was about just a year older than I am now, in fact. Yeah. Did it live up to expectations, spiritually, mystically, India? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, the first time, because I've been three times, the first time was the real pilgrimage. That's the one we're talking about, where you battled for yeah. a visa and all that. Yes. yes, yes. And, you know, it was enormously beneficial to have been there and to climb the holy mountains but especially when I got to the top of this holy mountain and I'd braved king cobras and what have you, it was a bit of an anticlimax. I didn't suddenly experience this illumination that not, perhaps rather naively I thought I would experience. Hmm. But there were other moments where I came into contact with people and events and moments and uh, I didn't experience, as I say in the book, in the, in the epilogue, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. I didn't experience great illumination. But I experienced moments of great spirituality, and I've never forgotten them. Mm -hmm. And they've been part of my, whole part of my ongoing life and my ongoing spiritual practice. Uh, so uh, it's been a huge influence on me uh, in my beliefs and in other respects. It's a very good read, I must <coughs> just say to our listeners, uh, A Pilgrim in India, 
John Victor Scott, using your middle name there, yes. for the first time, I think. Yes, I explained why I said it, because it's not, <laughs> it's not the John Scott that is generally known by yes, the, the satirical, public who read my columns. It's yeah. satirical. This is a, it's supposed to be, although there's a lot of funny bits in it. It's at a deeper level, and it's the most important book I've ever published. I love the opening lines of the foreword by Peter Fox, the Reverend Peter Fox. Yeah, yes. John Scott has penned a unique and personalized spiritual classic. It's an acutely observed and astutely respectful exploration of a culture and spirituality that is different to the one in which he grew up. It's part travel diary, memoir, part inquiry into the way that religions bear witness to the ultimate reality. It's a very smart forward you've well, got in this Well, Peter, book. I think it's, I'm very grateful to him. That's a wonderful forward. And uh, I just think he's done me proud. But he also shows a great understanding of what I was... Tr I don't know whether I have achieved it or not, but what I was at least trying to achieve right. in that book. John, your next piece of music is Debussy's Claire de Lune. Yes. The piano piece. Yes. Um, <laughs> I know you're laughing because you wanted me to play Victor Borg. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> you know, I love Victor Borg. Yes, we all do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do. Yes. And um, I used to, I still can recite some of his stuff verbatim. And that was just one of the things that stuck in my mind. Claire de Lune uh, with his Danish accent. I'm now going to play Claire de Lune. Translated into English, Claire the Saloon. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, that's what he does. Thing. Yes, yes, yes. Very good imitation of his voice. Yes. And um, so, uh, and then, you know, uh, Alan Stevenson, the composer yes. and musician and conductor, uh, who died quite recently. And um, when he discovered my, how much I enjoyed uh, Victor Borger, he very kindly gave me a whole sheaf of pirated <laughs> CDs, CDs. CDs. And I was very grateful to him. Of course, that Claire de Lune is among them. So that's hence my choice. But we're going to hear the real Claire de Lune. The real Claire de Lune. Yes, okay. Not him butchering it. <laughs> yes, okay. Although he, I've got a recording, by the way, of him playing it properly as well. Yes. Oh, he was a full concert oh, pianist. Oh, he was a very good uh, pianist. Absolutely. Yes. yes.
There you are, Debussy's beautiful Claire de Lune there, another choice of my guest, John Scott, here on Fine Music Radio on People of Note. John, in your long journalistic career, mm. I mean, you were editor of the Cape Times for a long time, weren't you? No, I wasn't. I was a very oh. short period. Uh, but I you worked for the Cape Times for a just, long time. Oh, yeah, for about 48 years. Yeah, so that's I got mixed uh, up. I was managing editor and then deputy editor. Yes. And then at a time when I should have retired... Or I shouldn't have become editor. Really, I was an aging pale male at the age of <laughs> 61. The Cape Times had had a couple of editors who were not, and may be very tactful, uh, uh, especially the second one, who I took over from, were not a success. 
and he was uh, asked to leave. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the feeling at the time, this was 2000, that the readership of the Cape Times had been alienated and that and the staff had been traumatized by a polarization that had been going on and so my brief was in the and it was never intended to be a long editorship was to restore morale mm. among the staff of the cape times and win back all those alienated readers to what extent i was able to do that um, I don't know. But as far as uh, management work were concerned, they were very happy and felt okay. I had done the job. Okay. Yes. You've had some major highlights in your career because I know famously you covered the fall of the Berlin Wall and were arrested yeah. in the process. Yes. You, were, you reported on the heart transplant. I mean, you've had I some did. big stories. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That was the first time the heart transplant was in 19, December 1967. And... Um, uh, it was the first time that a personal byline was given to a writer of a news story. They mm -hmm. said, uh, by our correspondent, whatever, whatever. I was the medical correspondent, but not only that, by John Scott. And that broke new ground. Mm -hmm. uh, and that went on, of course, for several weeks. Uh, Washkansky, the first recipient, died after 19 days. Then there was a follow-up, and then uh, Dr. Bleiberg, a dentist, was the next one. So uh, I was writing all these medical stories, front-page stories, all the time. But my real interest really was not medicine. I was also a defense correspondent simultaneously, and I'd never done military training. Uh, my real interest was politics. And that was why in 1969 I eventually got into the press gallery. At Parliament, yes. But yes. you stood as a candidate for the Progressive Federal Party I and did. said you wanted to get into politics itself. I thought I could do a lot better than these guys who had been watching <laughs> from above for 21 years. Right. And uh, so uh, I resigned. I had to take my pension out, you know. Mm. And uh, it was a very silly thing to do. But I learned more about politics in a three-month election campaign. I stood as a can parliamentary candidate in Simonstown. Uh, than I had learnt in 20-odd years of sitting watching these MPs operate. Mm -hmm. And I think that in hindsight, of course, these, it's a blessing. I was saved a fate worse than death, and so were my constituents. I would not have been a good <laughs> parliamentarian or politician. I'm an observer, but not a doer when it comes and to... And a writer, a writer yes. of some distinction. It's very different. It must be very different to write a report, to report on something, or to write a column where you are a columnist every week? The um, straight reportage, providing you get, you've got all the facts, mm -hmm. obviously is a lot easier. Yes, A lot sure. easier. Yeah. And I just, uh, the way I write as a columnist and uh, bringing humor into it, I've always looked upon as a gift that I was given. Yes. Nothing to do with me, it's just my natural response <laughs> to, you're, you're talking about to your, people and to events, yes. To your satirical side, which yes. you say now is coming naturally to you. Absolutely. All over the years. Yes, yes. Satire and irony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, 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 in the old days when some of the, the, the Nat MPs 
used to come and thank me for the mention, honourable mention I'd given them in, in my column, not having spotted that, that I'd been taking the mickey out of them. <laughs> and, 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 and one rushed up to me, I passed him, and he rushed back up Parliament Street saying, oh, Mr. Scott, thank you very much. I had compared him to, uh, to, to Clark Gable with his, with his immaculately manicured moustache and his brutal creamed hair and that sort of thing. <laughs> and he said, thank you very much for comparing me to Clark Gable. Well, you see, <laughs> no wonder the Beal didn't want to translate. But I also, or... there were a lot who actually appreciated the humour, although yes, I was course. on the opposite side, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, anti-government. And they all privately would come to me and say, I really enjoyed you. I, I mean, Ben Skuman, mm. who was the first leader of the House of Assembly uh, in the, with the 1948 uh, government of Diaz Malan. And uh, anyway, uh, whatever number of years later, he became leader of the House. And he wrote the foreword to my first notes in the House column, uh, <laughs> uh, book. That's a turn up for the yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, listen, we, go, we have to end now, more or less, but we're going to go back to what you said at the beginning. You wanted to talk about a film to do with your last piece of music. Well, the last piece of music, can I tell you what, I, what it is? Yes. Okay. It's a piece of music that I love. <laughs> I get very emotional just thinking about it. It's yes. Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I just love I just love it amazing piece of music. I love Rachmaninoff anyway, mm. but to me that just does amazing things to me. But I learned only uh, a short while ago that it was uh, and I watched the movie uh, a wonderful movie called Brief Encounter. Uh, it was a war, just post-war movie, black and white, English about, uh, and it stars Trevor Howard and he meets this lady, they're both married, but he meets this lady in the station waiting room in England and they have an affair, but it's unconsummated. It's just they meet and they're desperately in love and it's very sad because in, when they finally part, it's back to their own not very satisfactory marriages. But coming in and out and in and out of that movie is Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. Well, that's a jolly good reason to play it. And we're going to play the first movement as much yes, of it sure. as we yeah, can. Yeah, I'm talking about the first movement. Yeah, the first yes, movement. Yes. And, I mean, you're right. Yes. It's a huge favorite of many people. It's a most glorious piece of music. Yes. And we're listening to it now with um, Vladimir Ashkenazi and the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Andre Previn. But um, I've been talking to John Scott. And, John, thank you. It's been fascinating talking to you, and it's good to know that you're still going strong. And I'm looking forward to your next book. Well, my next book is uh, my memoirs, and the title is So Far So Good. And at my great age, that's all one can say. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank it's been you. a great pleasure, Rodney. Thank you, John. Yeah.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FM.